Hey y'all, Justin here. Just my usual reminder that The Wedding Scammer is a seven-part story that isn't complete until you get to the end. But I've also got a recommendation for you. My dear friend and colleague, Rob Harvilla, just released his new book. It's called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s and is based on his excellent podcast, which, full disclosure, I'm also a producer on. But if you like 90s music, good writing, and lightly embarrassing personal anecdotes, you'll love this one. Buy 60 Songs That Explain the 90s wherever you get your books or click the link in this episode's description. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Previously on The Wedding Scammer. Carl Buccio was the new name, and that was the person that we identified in a uh, photo lineup with Oakland Police Department. Your trust is broken forever. Like, you can't... Who, who are you ever going to trust again after that? Like, who hurt Carl that he feels like he needs to hurt other people? It can only be about control. Like, that's where I landed pretty quickly. Over the past four episodes, I've told you a lot about our scammer, including a bunch of the names he's gone by. Michael, Lawrence, Mark, and his real name, Carl Buccio. It's a lot of information. But now it's time to start connecting all these dots. And to do that, we need to spend a couple minutes back in LA in 2017 with a guy who worked exactly one wedding with Carl, someone named Christopher. I mean, there's always a mess up at a wedding, but this was a whole different ballgame. Just like a slight hiccup. Christopher asked that we not use his last name, but he's a planner who works very high end weddings. In this one, in 2017, it cost more than $100,000, he says. A lot riding on it. And the bride and groom had a contract with our old friends at Zencraft. But the day of the wedding, Christopher says, the caterer was a ghost. One o'clock rolled around, no no interaction from them. Two o'clock, no interaction. Three o'clock, no interaction. Finally, at 4.30, a half hour before the bride was supposed to walk down the aisle, in came Zencraft. Except... It was Barrett and three other people, and at that moment, we automatically knew, like, this was going to be a shit show. It was only Barrett and three other people. Christopher says Zencraft was supposed to bring a dozen staffers. They brought four. They also didn't bring enough food or liquor. A disaster for any wedding, let alone one this expensive. But Christopher says one of the bartenders did bring something else. A bag of cocaine fell out of his pocket. It wasn't one of those cute little, you know, bags with smiley faces on it. It was like a Ziploc. 
bag. So then it went from like it falling out of his pocket to him like, well, since the cat's out of the bag, maybe I can push this. And then I remember he was going around to like all the women and was trying to give them cocaine. I've heard this same story from the groom and several of the guests at this wedding. This nightmare scenario that Christopher is describing, it appears to have gone down just like this. A high-end wedding with not enough food, but more than enough cocaine. Yet another Zencraft disaster, it seems. And that's even before the grand arrival of Carl Buccio, who you'll remember was going by Michael Esposito back then. He ended up showing, you know, in the middle of the wedding, just dodged into the kitchen and started screaming at, you know, our staff and his staff and was like, I've been doing this for X amount of years and I know what I'm doing and you all need to shut the fuck up. I don't need you guys. I'm going to take my stuff and just leave. He was just in the back screaming. Like, he was throwing napkins. If there was something he could grab, he would just throw. Carl did pack up and leave. And he even almost picked a fight with the groom on his way out. It was something that Christopher says he's never seen before in all of his years working weddings. This one vendor single-handedly tanked the wedding. And then, according to Christopher and the groom, just pocketed the money. And you may be wondering why I'm telling you about this L.A. wedding from 2017 right now. Didn't we leave L.A. a few episodes ago? Well, five years later, in late 2022, Christopher got an unexpected call. The person on the phone said she'd been working weddings, and this one guy who hired her was way behind on paying her. She also suspected he may have been faking his identity. Then she told Christopher that this guy may have worked with him one time back in L.A., at a wedding that had something to do with a big bag of cocaine. And when Christopher heard this, it clicked. This was the same guy. Six, seven years later, here he is kind of following the same trajectory. But there was a new wrinkle. One you could probably guess. Because our guy wasn't going by Michael or Carl or Mark or any of the names we've mentioned. He was going by a new one. Lance Miller. And the person on the call telling Christopher this info? My name is Amy Savelle, and I'm from Houston, Texas. Houston, which, as you might remember, is back where I started this series, in that CVS with some new friends. Now it's time we meet those new friends for real, and it's also time to figure out what our old friend Carl has been up to, and more importantly, what we can do about it. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Justin Sales. This is The Wedding Scammer. Chapter 5. All My Scammers Live in Texas. I've always thought this series was about a few different things. First, obviously, our hunt for Carl Buccio through his many different aliases and schemes across the country. But also... It's about what happens to you when you feel that you've been scammed, how you react. And I found that often the reaction is to start researching, to jump down a rabbit hole. That goes for not just me, but also all the people we've met while investigating Carl. Nancy at Newsarati, documentary Josh and Ellen the Bride, Josh and Janae in the Bay Area, people who essentially became amateur detectives doing their own work, trying to answer the question, who is this man who ripped me off? And these people have been more than just helpful. 
Without them, I wouldn't have 70% of the information I do on Carl Bucho. This certainly isn't the first true crime show to highlight the work of civilians, if you will. In fact, there's a whole cottage industry devoted to hobbyist investigators. You can find databases on the internet filled with unsolved murders and missing person cases. Hell, there's even something called the Citizen Detective Guide that you can Google right now. It includes autopsy terminology and how-tos for breaking down satellite images. The takeaway? You too can be a web sleuth in 12 easy steps. But I put those things in a different category than our people, the Nancys and the Joshes. The Citizen Detective Guys seems to be for people weaned on serial or making a murderer, people with spare time and some internet know-how looking for a thrill. Our investigators in this case, they're victims first and foremost. They want answers because of what happened to them. They want their money back. And again, I wouldn't have been able to make this show without all of the people I've mentioned. But there are two more who were instrumental in piecing together the Carl Buccio puzzle. And unlike the rest of us who were trying to figure out things after the fact, these two were able to figure out Carl's game in real time. At this point, they're basically pros at this. They're even getting the hang of this whole podcast thing. Check, 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 check it out. What, 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 what's it all about? Are you already recording? I just hit record a second ago. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> That's Amy Savell and Leah Baker, my new best friends in Houston. Amy owns a floral design business in Houston, and Leah works for her. They're close. Their scammer story starts in summer 2021, about two years after Carl's disastrous run in the Bay Area. I have a good friend of mine, and she approached me telling me about a gentleman who was fairly new to the Houston area and that he came from all of this money and he had all these restaurants in New York and L.A. That's Amy. She's telling me about how she met Carl Buccio. Except, like I said earlier, she knew him as Lance Miller, another alias. I know. Though I suspect after the whole Michael Mark Lawrence fiasco, you're getting pretty good at this kind of thing. Lance came to Houston in 2020 with his husband. Yup, the same one you've already met. They're married now. And Lance cycled through several different events businesses before settling on two. First, a catering company named Caviar and Banana. And later, his own wedding venue named Charleston Lane. And it's worth noting, this place is kind of nice. It's right on a lake, an hour north of the city. And it just had a makeover. Our guy is looking a little more legit these days. But some things never change. Lance told people the same stories he's told everyone at every stop. Rich family, trust fund, all the things we know now don't exist. But this time, he added one detail to the biography that I find amazing. So do Amy and Leah. He grew up on in New York on the Upper East End, right? Like Joan Rivers raised him. Joan Rivers was his mother's best friend. They like <laughs> lived in the same building. When he would tell me that, like he's like super abrasive. And I'm like, well, this makes sense. Like, right. Joan Rivers. Like yeah. if you were raised by this woman as your mother's best friend. Of like, course, this is how you would act. Plus, the visuals match the stories, according to Leah. He's also driving nice cars and wearing nice watches and has nice clothes on. And it's all perceived as 
yeah, this guy has a lot of money. Why wouldn't, you know, I believe that? They tell me Lance even had a bodyguard at one point. This guy screamed money. And they liked him. Lance was a good time. A little rough around the edges, but not without his charms. He's really funny. I thought he had great, like, wit about him. He would, like, come back with these, you know, to have these comebacks for you. You could, like, poke fun at him a little bit, and he would take it, but he would throw it right back at you ten times harder. Right away, Amy and Lance became close. They went shopping for supplies. They went out to dinner together with their husbands. He even bought her a Gucci bag at one point. Amy and Lance also started working together. Lance began to hire Amy's company to work his events, mostly designing floral arrangements for weddings. It seemed like a win-win. Amy gets more gigs for her growing business, while Lance gets a talented floral designer with a lot of connections. But, and this might sound familiar to you, listener, Amy and Leah say it was almost always chaos with Lance. Temper tantrums, awful communication, even weddings dumped on them at the last minute with the expectation they'd perform miracles. He was like, I fucked up. I have a wedding today. We didn't order the flowers, and I need your help. We pulled off the impossible for him. But before long, the money became a problem too. One early clue for Amy, Lance asked her to pay him back half the cost of that Gucci bag, 1200 bucks, some gift. But the bigger money issue for Amy was about getting paid for the work she did for Lance. At first, he would pay with little hassle, she says. But then... At some point in 2022, she tells me he fell behind. And when he finally would pay, the checks would often bounce. In at least one instance, she says he paid her online, but then disputed the payment and blamed it on his line of credit with the bank. He would pay me on like that Saturday morning, come Monday, you know, the money should have cleared my account, but what had been posted as a pending payment had been withdrawn and I would have an insufficient funds notice from my bank about the check. Amy supplied me with a record of all these things. QuickBooks statements, bounce checks, notices that Amy owed penalties to her bank for the bounce checks. She says it was infuriating, especially because Lance claimed to be so damn rich. You know, he was like, so look, I'm going to get with the trust and I'm going to have them give me the money to pay for all of these outstanding invoices because we should never be this far behind. I had no idea that it got this far. I'll have it to you tomorrow. So tomorrow comes and I'm like, hey, where's my money? And he is like, oh, you know, I was too busy and I couldn't get to it. By late 2022, the total amount that Lance owed Amy reached more than 26 grand, she tells me. And here we go again, right? Our guy using another alias and some clumsy sleight of hand to keep from paying a debt. It's a pattern we've seen over and over. Because remember, While Lance Miller owed Amy more than 26 grand in Texas, the rest of Carl's aliases owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in California, according to lawsuits and labor commission judgments. But Amy didn't know all that at the time. She just knew there was someone she considered a friend who was suddenly writing her bad checks. And from her point of view, essentially stealing from her. But it wasn't just money she says he was taking. He also went after her best employee, Leah. He always made jokes that he was going to steal me from Amy to come work for him. Leah started working for Amy in late 2021, not long after Amy met Lance. And Leah says she was friendly all along with Lance, 
so she never thought he was serious about poaching her to come work for him. But that changed in September 2022. Leah tells me Lance offered her a great salary, $30,000 to do with social media, and another seventy grand to be his assistant up at Charleston Lane. A life-changing amount of money for her. He offered me $100,000 a year. And, I, you know, me and my husband just bought a house. So to me, all of that sounded really good. It's hundred k. I have no degree. Like, I, you know, I it was, well, you'd be dumb not to take it. But Leah found that the money came at a cost. Because stop me if you've heard this before, but working for Lance proved to be a high-stress environment. Echoes of every other business this guy has run since I've known him. Leah wore a lot of hats, booking gigs, securing deposits from customers, figuring out the schedule. And so she saw the same things that his past employees in California described to me. Cutting corners, lying to customers, pretending that something is gourmet when it's anything but. He goes, call me when you get to Whole Foods. So I get there and he's like, okay, I need you to go where they do the prepackaged meals. Leah's talking about a tasting for a wedding and Lance had her buying pre-made chicken at Whole Foods. I was like, are you serious? And he was like, Yes, I'm serious. Also serious, Lance's attitude. He has a really bad temper, and anything will set him off. And he just laid into us, like, screaming, banging his fist on the table, throwing his phone across the room. And I was literally had only been there two weeks, maybe. And I was just... Like, what the hell did I get myself into? That question reappeared in Leah's mind one day in flashing lights when she says a coworker told her something curious about Lance. Something that suggested he wasn't exactly who he said he was. She was like, I just want to let you know, like, I've found some stuff on the internet about him. I'm like, are you serious? She's like, yeah, my uncle did something, something, and I found some stuff on him. Leah was never able to find out exactly what was behind that cryptic message, and I've reached out to that employee with the mystery uncle to no avail. But that encounter was enough for Leah to text Amy that day and ask if she could have her old job back. When Amy agreed, Leah quit on the spot. She took the hour drive back to Houston, went to go see her husband, and while that strange interaction with that coworker was fresh in her mind, she jumped on her computer. I went to my husband's bar and had a glass of wine and looked up Lance Miller online, couldn't find a thing about him. Which made sense because Leah had no idea that Lance Miller didn't even exist. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. 
car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Here's an unsettling question for you. Have you ever wondered if one of your close friends was an imposter? It's never happened to me, and I hope it hasn't happened to you. But that's the situation Amy Savelle found herself in back in November 2022 as she was staring at a pile of bad checks written by her dear friend, Lance Miller. I was like, fuck it. I'll just sue him. I'll take him to court. I just kind of started Googling, like, Lance Miller, Houston, Texas. And the stuff for Caviar and Banana would come up and Charleston Lane, and he has a LinkedIn, and then nothing. And I was like, all right. Nothing. So Amy dug deeper. Lance Miller, Los Angeles caterer. Nothing would come up. Los Angeles, New York caterer. Lance Miller, Martha Stewart. You know, because if he had been as active in all the things with her as he had said, there should have been something there. Amy was just like me six years earlier at Newsarati when I was frantically searching for the name Michael Esposito online. Different names, same result. This guy was a ghost. But at this point, she didn't know everything we know now. Amy was just confused. So she brought it up to Leah. And they decided to reach out to Leah's former colleague at Charleston Lane. The one with the uncle. The one who found some strange stuff on Lance. So I got on the phone with her and she was kind of like tossing around these names. And none of them turned out to be anything. But the seed was planted in my mind. And the next day I came to work and I said, I keep realizing that like everything that he said to me has been a lie. And that's when she remembered one small detail that Lance had let slip. And I was like, you remember the, like, the planner that like Lance hated? Hated him. Like, hated him. The planner that Lance hated? His name was Christopher. You heard from him at the beginning of this episode. The one who worked the wedding in Los Angeles, where a bartender brought out a big bag of cocaine. The one who said... He was just in the back screaming. Like he was throwing napkins. If there was something he could grab, he would just throw. Okay, before we go any further, let's step back for a second. Because this moment is where all the pieces of our story start to come together. Maybe it's an unbelievable coincidence, or maybe if you scam enough people, a few of them are going to know each other. But here's what happened. Christopher the Planner grew up in Houston. And a few years back, he moved home for a bit and spent some time working in the wedding industry there. Lance got wind of this, and one day, totally unprompted, he warned Amy about Christopher, said he worked with him in Los Angeles and didn't trust him. In fact, he had one very specific story about Christopher. He would, like, tell this story about how he had brought him on to, like, do this event with him. And they broke a bunch of stuff. And how, like, the bartenders that he had hired, I think that there was, like, a story about, like, they dropped a bag of cocaine on the floor. And then how he, like, got mad and was, like, arguing with the groom. 
This is Amy describing how Lance talked about that night, how he talked about Christopher. And it's pretty much the same story that Christopher and the groom both told me, except with the roles reversed. Lance was saying Christopher was responsible for the chaos, the cocaine bartender, the fighting with the groom, the ruined wedding, basically transposing this disaster onto Christopher, when I know from the groom that's not how this went. I mean, why even say any of that? Why risk acknowledging any connection to Michael Esposito when you're living as Lance Miller? But here's the thing. Amy knew Christopher a little. They worked one unremarkable gig together a couple months after Lance told her that story. So she had a direct line to Christopher, unbeknownst to Lance. And in late 2022, when Amy was looking for any clue into Lance's past life, she remembered the cocaine bartender story that Lance had told her a year earlier. So while she was turning over every other leaf, she decided to reach out to Christopher. And it turned out to be one of the most fortuitous conversations of this entire story. Here's Amy and Christopher describing that phone call to me in separate conversations. I get him on the phone. And I'm like, hey, like, I, you know, this isn't about a client, but I'm calling you about somebody that I think we both know. She basically said that she was working on a few projects with a gentleman. She was also sensing he wasn't clearly who he says he was and then stiffing her on all of this money. And he says, well, who is it? And I said, Lance Miller with caviar and banana. I wasn't getting it. I was like, I don't know who you're talking about. I've never worked with a Lance. I've never worked with that company before. And I'm like, okay, well, let's scratch that because I am not convinced that that's his real name anyway, which is the reason why I'm calling you because he had a very specific story about an event that he did with you. And I feel like you're going to know him from that. Then Amy told him the story about the cocaine bartender. That it just finally clicked. And I was like, oh, Zencraft, L.A. Then I look up Zen Catering, Google that, Los Angeles, and it pulls up Zencraft Catering. So I go to reviews and I said, Michael. And he said, that was his name. And that, my friends, is honest-to-God detective work. Amy latched onto one small thing that the man she knew as Lance Miller told her, and she turned it into the key to connecting all the dots. But besides helping the investigation, Christopher also had a piece of advice for Amy. You know, I was like, well, he didn't pay you, did he? And she's like, nope. I was like, well, don't hold your breath. Leah found the whole situation beautifully ironic. You talk shit on this person and... Christopher's basically the reason we found you, <laughs> you know? Like, if we wouldn't have gone to him or called him, we would have not known all the information that we would soon find out. And they would soon find out a lot. Lawrence Tonner, Mark White, Cookshop, Newsarati, Nightmare Weddings, Lawsuits. A greatest hits collection of everything you've heard on this podcast. They also found the articles in San Francisco. The ones that talked about the real Lawrence Tonner's arrest and the liquor license fiasco. And that led them to Ali Tong, the food influencer from San Francisco who worked as Cookshop's social media coordinator, one of the people we spoke to a few episodes ago. Ali happened to be one of the main people quoted in the San Francisco Chronicle article. Leah decided to try Ali on Instagram. She thought it was a Hail Mary. So I go on Instagram. I see she has... 150,000 followers. And I'm like, well, she's never going to see this message, but let me just try. So I message her and I'm like, 
I know this is going to sound random, but I live in Houston, Texas, and I think I worked for a former employer of yours. I think you know him as Mark White. Leah hit send and waited. And because they didn't follow each other, it went to Allie's spam folder, typically a death knell for a random DM. Except, well, here's Allie explaining. I don't normally check that, but for some reason, I just decided to click it that night. I was like, oh, wait, this looks like a real message. So I opened it. And she said, can you hop on a call? And I was like, okay, (laughs) why not? Two more of this guy's victims had just connected. Leah told Allie her story, and they compared notes. Their experiences were so similar that it was hard to deny they were talking about the same person. And I was just like, yep, that sounds exactly like the guy I know, the tendencies and the personality and him like blowing up and being verbally abusive to people. I was like, yep. One other thing. Back in episode three, Allie told us about how she posted an Instagram story of Carl at Cookshop only to get a strange response from him. And he texted me later that night saying, I'm sorry, I just uh, don't like the way that I look these days. Do you mind taking it down? So I was like, oh, I guess he's a self-conscious. Well, the same thing happened to Leah when she was doing social media at Charleston Lane and she posted him on Instagram. And he was like, I need you to take that down right now. And I was like, oh. He's like, I just don't like the way I look. I don't want people to see me. And I don't want my picture anywhere. And I was like, okay, look, we all can be insecure about things. So if you don't want me to post that picture, I won't. And as the conversation went on, Allie had another idea. I immediately thought of you. She means me, your humble reporter and host. And I was like, I need to put you guys in touch because you have so much information. She was right. My investigation, the one that Allie and Josh and Janae and so many others had been helping me with, that had been going on for years at this point. There's a starting, but we have years on them. And I was like, they need to get in touch with you because you could help them so much. The text came from Allie last December about 10 days before Christmas, and a year after I had put this podcast on hold, thinking it was dead forever. Allie wanted to know if I was still working on it, because she had just had a call with, quote, some ladies who were scammed by him, end quote. The first thought that entered my mind was, this felt like a lot. I had closed the door on this podcast ever getting made. My first attempt had stalled out. Not enough leads, a beginning and middle with no ending. Hundreds of hours of work, pretty much down the drain. But the story stayed with me. You don't invest that much time and just move on. You don't hear stories from his victims and forget about them. So when Allie offered to connect me with Amy and Leah, I wasn't sure. I hesitated. But then I thought, you know what? Fuck it. If these two ladies wanted to jump down the rabbit hole, the least I could do was hand them a flashlight. Like, to me, I was like, oh, okay, like, we'll talk to her friend. Like, he's making a podcast, whatever. Like, I didn't think anything crazy of it. I didn't think it was that deep. I didn't think that you, like, had all this information. The three of us initially connected on Zoom, though not without some comedy. Given all the information they were learning, they didn't rule out the possibility that I was yet another one of Lance's schemes. That maybe I also wasn't who I said I was. In fact... We were like watching you on the TV and we were, I was like, what happens if we turn this on and it's, and it's Lance? Alas, it was just little old me. But from there, the three of us got tight. We started trading text messages with all of the research we could find, emailing files back and forth like they were classified documents. 
talking a lot about the name Carl Buccio, where this guy came from, and the long and twisted journey he took to living in Houston and using the name Lance Miller. But there was one other detail Amy and Leah found out that shook them more than the others. Remember how I said that Lance Miller rolled into town with his husband and that as Lance and Amy got close, they'd have double dates with their partners? Well, this is the same boyfriend slash fiance slash husband we've been talking about all along, Barrett Walters, which is indeed his government name. Except that's not what Amy knew him as. He told everyone in Houston his name is Brandon Walker, not Barrett Walters. Barrett was going by Brandon. And after a year and a half of getting close with him, Amy now knew the truth. To her, this hurt more than finding out Lance was actually Carl. Because she had found Brandon to be so kind, so gentle. He was the one who would send her texts when Lance was being too much. He was the one who connected with Amy's daughter like he was something of an uncle. He would, like, call her my girl. And he, he'd, like, text me, how's my girl doing? You know, or talk about for her birthday. He was like, oh, I need to pick my girl up and take her shopping. But when I finally, like, uncovered everything that I knew, and I was like, holy shit, like, my mind is blown. But there was this, like, moment where I, like, I was, like, literally mourning the loss of my relationship with Barrett. I felt so deceived. You know, it was, like, something that... I'm like actually getting choked up about it. I like genuinely am saddest about that most. Now I want to pause here again. Barrett has apparently been with Carl since at least 2016 when I met him. And these days, by all appearances, they're married. Though you'll remember from the Bay Area that the wedding invitations were under the names Barrett Walters and Lawrence Tonner. I've mentioned Barrett only a handful of times in this series, which is unfortunate because half the people I tell this story to say he's their favorite character. But I've largely kept him out of this for the sake of good journalism. I don't want to drag him into Carl's mess when my reporting doesn't support it. No one at any point in the story has said directly that Barrett is a scammer or the mastermind of anything. At most, people have said he gives Carl the veneer of legitimacy, which makes sense. He's handsome. He's likable. He's got no arrest record that I can find, and he's willing to put things like apartment leases and cell phones in his name. So even though he's listed on some of the Zencraft paperwork and named in some of the lawsuits, I've never considered Barrett to be the scammer. Also, before Houston, I've never been able to find an instance of Barrett using an alias. Carl has been Michael, Mark, Lawrence, Lance, and maybe a few others, but Barrett has always been Barrett. Until now. And it's strange, right? That this is happening after years of him using his real name? I think it is personally, but I want to stress, strange doesn't equal criminal, and neither does using a fake name in itself. But I do have one theory as to why he's using an alias in Texas, though it's largely speculation. Thanks to a few news articles from when they lived in California, the name Barrett Walters will forever be linked to his husband's aliases. And Barrett is currently working in the mental health field as a licensed professional counselor at a hospital in Austin. He's accredited by the Texas Behavioral Health Executive Council. And my theory is that basically, if I were in this field and thought my clients might Google me, I wouldn't want to be attached to Carl's mess. Would you? This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Amid all the discoveries about Carl, Amy brought the issue to the Houston police. She figured it was a cut and dry case. Here was this guy with a criminal past who had skipped out on lawsuits and various other debts, living under an alias and writing bad checks. Slam dunk, right? I filed a police report, right? It was turned over to the financial crimes department because, you know, he has written me tons of hot checks. But she says that even though investigators initially seemed excited to help, it didn't really go anywhere. They're like, well, we have no timeline for when we can help you. And we don't even know if when the investigator gets this, like, is this a civil dispute or is this a criminal dispute? A few months later, Amy would tell me that the Houston police dropped their investigation with little explanation. I reached out to the officer who Amy dealt with, but I never heard that. It's the same thing that happened to Josh and Janae in the Bay Area, though. They had all these bad checks written by this guy using a fake name. And ultimately, the cops did nothing. So I asked an expert about all this. His name is J. Michael Skiba, but you're going to love this. He also goes by Dr. Fraud. And he spent three decades helping police departments and big companies and even the United Nations on economic crimes. Thankfully, he also helps out people like me in the media with their reporting. A lot of challenges uh, just, just, you know, getting interest level. You know, and really a, a lot of it has to do with investigations itself. You know, a lot of a lot of law enforcement just just doesn't know where to start with these type of uh, cases. Dr. Freud has worked a lot bigger cases than Carl Buccio, but there's a common thread between what he's seen in his career and what I think we're dealing with in our story. Scams can be really confusing for local authorities who are often your first and often your only option to get some justice. Dr. Freud gave me an example of one of the first cases he worked. And as many of them do, it involved check fraud. Three bad checks were written in Texas. One of the perpetrators, uh, they were working in collusion with one another. One was in Florida. One was in Seattle. The, the bank was located in Connecticut. Turns out they had ties overseas. So the money somehow had been transferred and wired over. Confusing, right? If you go to your local police department, they're basically going to laugh at you for this, you know, for a good reason, not, not to you know, disrespect, but, but there's no training. There's also a matter of what's a criminal issue versus what should be handled in the civil courts. Lance wrote Amy all the bad checks from an LLC, much like he did with Josh and Janae a few years earlier. In many cases, Dr. Fraud says that makes the cops shrug their shoulders. A lot of times it's a business-to-business transaction or it has to do with a contract or a violation or an employment situation. Now that basically falls under breach of contract, which is a civil pursuit, a civil lawsuit. Civil just means that a victim could sue for money, but there's no jail time attached. And even if they win a lawsuit, good luck getting paid. As I've reported this story for the past few years, another question has come up repeatedly. If the local police aren't going to track a criminal across state lines, where is the FBI? They can handle this, right? Dr. Fraud says it mostly comes down to resources. If an agent has 50 cases and 
40 of them have to do with, you know, counterterrorism, and one comes in for a $10,000 check scam, I mean, it gets triaged accordingly. And because of these factors, we're living in something of the golden age of the scammer. The Federal Trade Commission says consumers lost $8.8 billion to fraud in 2022, up more than 30% from the previous year. And these aren't scammers ripping off big institutions. These are losses reported by regular people, employment scams, fraudulent investment opportunities, and especially romance scams, which have gone way up as online dating has become more common. Dr. Fraud says those numbers are just the tip of the iceberg because most people don't even want to come forward when they've been scammed. I see this a lot when I do media interviews, you know, with the news, they say, hey, you know, this local person has been scammed, you know, a victim of a romance scam. Almost 10 times out of 10, they cannot get that victim on air. And this explosion of scams is reflected in our entertainment landscape. Documentaries, podcasts like the one you're listening to. There are simply more scammers to cover. But if things like Anna Delvey and the Tinder Swindler are any indication, there will always be a healthy appetite for it. So I think there's just an intrigue of, wow, like, how did, how did he do that? You know, and I think for every one Elizabeth Holmes, there's, you know, five million, you know, local, smaller scammers that are just, you know, wouldn't would make a good podcast, let's say. And that last part brings us back to Carl Buccio. Look, I'm sure you figured out by now, Carl is not the best scammer who's ever existed. And he's certainly not the most efficient. Some of his schemes, like Newsarati, they don't make a lot of sense on paper. Others, like ruining weddings and keeping the cash, they feel like a lot of work to pocket a few thousand bucks a pop. In the Bay Area, everything may have seemed a little more sophisticated, but the end result was still a restaurant that went belly up. Perhaps Carl's best move is simply the fact that he can disappear and start over whenever he needs to. Take on a new name, move to a new city, abandon his debts and the people who trusted him. Sometimes the people who came to love him. That's something Dr. Fraud has seen time and time again in the cases he's investigated. One of the, the savvy things that a lot of the more seasoned scammers uh, are doing, you know, very similar to, to this case here, is that they, they hop around a lot state to state. And then even if someone figures them out, it's not like a cop from California is going to get on a plane to Texas over some bad checks. So they kind of do a cost-benefit analysis, thinking, well, why are we going to send, you know, one of our deputies across the country and, you know, to try to collect on a couple thousand dollars? Taken all together, Dr. Fraud pretty much confirms what I've come to learn while reporting this story. The system just isn't set up to catch crooks like Carl. He's a loophole. And nothing, so far at least, has scared him enough to make him go straight. It's a big reason I wanted to make this podcast to shine a light on someone who operates in the shadows. And currently, he's in a giant shadow, the state of Texas. And it's a bit of a different situation there relative to California or even his past in New York. There are no lawsuits or criminal complaints against him that I can find. No labor complaints, no avalanche of bad reviews either. From all outside appearances, it looks more legit. He may owe Amy money and he may be concealing his identity. But this seems different than L.A. or San Francisco. Though I do want to point out, there are some details in Texas that feel scammy. Like the fact that when Amy reached out to me in late 2022, none of Carl's businesses appeared to be registered with the state of Texas, despite all the revenue he took in the past few years. Or the fact that he signed contracts with his employees under a fake name, 
mentioning the quote, Lance Miller and Family Trust, something that either doesn't exist or has nothing to do with Carl Buccio. But none of this, not these contracts or the unregistered businesses or the tens of thousands of dollars in bad checks he wrote Amy, has been enough to get the authorities to do anything. So Carl gets to live in Texas under the name Lance Miller, despite whatever he owes under his many aliases. So this is where I think like a major failure has happened, right? Because it isn't like Josh and Janae didn't go and like try to press charges. Obviously, people have filed like multiple complaints against them. There are, you know, numbers of lawsuits, like all of the things that have happened. It's partly why Amy never filed the lawsuit she was talking about. She saw that all the other ones went nowhere, even when they seemed like a layup. He literally hired me to do a job. He wrote me hot checks knowing that they were bad. He intentionally defrauded me. So if the authorities aren't going to do anything about a problem like Carl Buccio, then the best we can do is tell a story about it and hope people listen. In late December 2022, about 10 days after that first Zoom with Amy and Leah, my producer Vikram and I met at Spotify's downtown LA offices. We had a big question to discuss. Do we actually have a podcast on our hands? Over the next four hours, we filled up a whiteboard, a big one, with everything I knew about this story. Characters, locations, evidence, all of Carl's aliases. When we were done, this whiteboard looked insane. 20 years of a con man's life scribbled in marker. But the more we stared at it, a trend emerged. Everywhere Carl had been, he had left at least one person who got as interested as I did, often more interested. And these people, like me, started doing their own investigations. Vikram took a green marker and started circling their names. Nancy from Newsarati, Documentary Josh, Josh and Janae. They didn't know it, but we began affectionately calling them our green circle detectives. In a story spread out across years, locations, and even industries, these green circle detectives were the one constant thing. And they would all play critical roles in helping me piece the story together. Without Nancy in the Facebook groups, I may have never found out that Carl went into the catering business. Without documentary Josh, I never would have understood how good Carl is at faking it. Without Josh and Janae, I wouldn't have the leases, the bad checks, the Photoshop driver's licenses. I might not even know his name. And without Leah and Amy, I don't think I'd have a show. I was like obsessed with it, which is probably why I like found out as much stuff as I did in like such a short amount of time. Amy's describing the process that so many people go through with Carl. They get ripped off. They start poking around. They find a bunch of concerning info. But that process typically happens after he skips down. By figuring Carl out in real time, Amy and Leah had the most important information of all, where he was and what he was doing. But what can we do with this info? At the end of the day, Amy and I can't arrest anyone, and we aren't lawyers. All we can do is gather information, connect the dots, and try to get people to understand. But to do that, I need to get to the truth, to get to the bottom of this and tell a good story. And a good story needs a good ending. So if you've been charting my side stories about trying to get this project greenlit, we've hit the go point. 
Because Amy and Leah finding me is enough to get my bosses to say, hey, maybe the story has an ending. And the first thing we realize after deciding that, I need to confront Carl and figure out what that ending is. I need to try to get him on mic, answering questions. To do that, I need to go to Texas. And soon, in case he vanishes again, I need to pay him a surprise visit with my new friends. We have seen that, like, abusive, repetitive pattern that has, like, happened time and time again that people should be like, well, fuck this. Like, we should put a stop to this guy. The buck stops here, as Texans say. But first, I gotta figure out how to get this wire on my chest. Because I'll be damned if we pay him a visit and I don't record the whole thing. Testing, testing, one, two. I am wearing a wire. Probably the most anxious I've ever felt in my entire life. I think the gloves can come off, you know, and you can do what you need to do to get to the truth. Have you gone by Michael Esposito, Mark White, Lawrence Tonner? The Wedding Scammer was reported and written by me, Justin Sales. The executive producers are Juliet Littman, Mallory Rubin, and Sean Fennessy. Our story editor is Amanda Dobbins. The show was produced by Jade Whaley, Mike Wargon, Bobby Wagner, Vikram Patel, and me. Fact-checking by Dan Comer. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. The music in this series was composed by Justin Cotoni of 13th Ward Social Club. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening.